Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of the podcast with Keith Costas. I'm Mike Claiborne, of course, and this is ClaibsOnline.com. And first of all, Keith, uh, we've got a week under our belts now with regard to the baseball season. Uh, I'm not sure if we push the panic button about anything. Uh, I'm sure there are some teams that are already doing that. And then there are other teams like Cincinnati Reds who want to be the badasses of baseball, which is fine. <laughs> It'd be nice if they had some guys who knew how to win other than Mustakis. So uh, an interesting first week of baseball. What do you think? Yeah, how about the Central? I mean, we got four teams that are in the mix. Obviously, the Pirates are on a long-term rebuild, but four of the five have already cleared the benches. So I guess these guys are ready to go <laughs> between what happened with the Cardinals and the Reds and then the Brewers and the and the Cubs having a little dust-up yesterday with Wilson Contreras. So, yeah, a little early to make any snap judgments, but it's always fun this first week, you know, covering these stories that people aren't even going to remember by the All-Star break. We've got the Akil Badu kid in Detroit going nuts of a Rule 5 pick, you know, a couple of those bench clears that we just talked about. So good to have baseball back, but, yeah, still a long way to go, obviously. A, a long way to go in a lot of different regards. Uh, we didn't mention the fact that apparently the, the virus is over in the state of Texas at the ballpark <laughs> because they let any, anybody and everybody come in. And the inconsistencies that we're seeing with regard to who can have what in the ballpark is is certainly a concern. Uh, Major League Baseball decided they weren't going to play the All-Star game in Atlanta. Uh, and I was a little surprised that they would step up so quickly, uh, considering that their African-American participation is, what, about 8%. And they were the first ones to raise their hands and said, nope, we're not going to be part of this and we're going to move on. And, you know, they were ready for the backlash. And, you know, I don't know where it goes from here, but they're going to go to Colorado. So we know the home run derby is going to be worth watching. Yeah, no doubt about that. I'm going to be want to be in the ballpark with uh, Coors Field being the side of the home run derby. And you talk about the situation in these ballparks. I saw earlier today Stan Kasten from the Dodgers said they're looking to get back to 100% by mid-June. So, I mean, if out in L.A. and California they're talking about having full ballparks, I guess that's a pretty good indication that – most of the parks around the league, I would think, would be targeting something similar. If out in California, they think that's feasible. Yeah, you know, I, I think what's happening, I think this thing has kind of caught a bunch of teams by surprise because I don't think anyone envisioned the vaccine having such an impact so quickly. Uh, when you go back to January, I, I think that I know the president at that point said we can get 100 million done uh, in the first 100 days. Uh, that'd be good. And it looks like we're going to have 200 million done. So things have moved at a pretty good pace. And I, and I guess from a personal standpoint, where do you think that's going to put the broadcasters? Um, you, you know what it's like on your end. I don't think most broadcasters felt like they were going to have their people in the ballpark, uh, maybe by the All-Star break. But right now, it looks like maybe by June, if not sooner, you know, they'll have enough of the 85 percentile covered that maybe they'll have to look at that and revisit it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with your assessment that I think the uh... – the success of late, at least, of this vaccine rollout has kind of caught people off guard. I know for me personally, it wasn't even really on my radar. I mean, obviously, I was monitoring things, but I wasn't looking or anything. And then up here in New York, as soon as they said 30 and over, that first day, there was appointments all over the mm -hmm. place. I mean, people are getting it left and right, no problem. So, yeah, I think people were ready for a long season of basically doing things just like how we learned to do them last year. But who knows if this vaccine really gets going and people are – pretty much in good shape by the all-star break. Maybe we can get back sooner rather than later, but for now, at least in our shop, we're keeping going with the kind of remote production that we've been used to uh, since the start of this whole thing last spring. Speaking of remote productions, uh, next MLB game is Friday night. That should be an interesting set too. Yeah, absolutely. Home opener for the Dodgers against the Nationals. So you got the last two 
World Series winners going head-to-head. It'll be the first time that they played since the NLDS back in 19 when the Nationals went to Game 5 and knocked out the Dodgers. So I feel like that narrative about is the 2020 champion a real champion kind of died down when it ended up being the Dodgers just because they were so good. I mean, I think they were the fourth team in the modern era to lead the league in runs per game and DRA. I can't really argue with that. You're scoring the most runs, giving up the least runs. I think you're the best team. And then you win the World Series. You're definitely the best team. So, yeah, you know, it definitely feels like uh, that narrative is kind of water under the bridge at this point, whether or not they're a legitimate champion. But if there are people out there still wondering, we've got the last 162 champ versus the 60-game champ coming up on Friday. And obviously Juan Soto, if you saw yesterday, the Nats a little slow getting started with their season with some COVID issues. But Soto picking up, you know, basically right where he left off as the best hitter in baseball. Walk-off hit on the first day of the season, the hardest ball he's ever hit since they've been tracking that kind of thing. So, yeah, whenever you get a chance to watch Soto, especially against a team like the Dodgers, that's must-see. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and, and, you know, you talk about Soto, who who is an incredible hitter. We watch him in spring training, and, and just his approach is one where it's a little intimidating in, in how he stares at the pitcher. He's moving around a batter's box. But, man, a guy can flat-out hit, and he uses a whole field. And, that, and that's what I appreciate about him because we see some of these guys who are always dead pull hitters. They don't use a whole ballpark. But Soto will hit it where you pitch it, and he will hit it with authority. Yeah, uses the whole field for sure. And then the other thing that everyone talks about, just the plate discipline. I looked it mm-hmm. up earlier today getting ready for this game. He's had one stretch in his career so far where he's gone gone more than three straight games without a hit. It was six straight hitless games back in 2019, 0 for 15. He walked 12 times during the 0 for 15. So his on-base percentage was almost 450. So even when he's not hitting, you can't get him out. I mean – it's kind of a, if you really follow baseball every day, you saw this offseason. There were a lot of stories written about him comparing to Ted Williams, trying to kind of put into historical context what he's done so far in his career. And I'm right there with everybody. I mean, I think you look at some of the markers for this guy, especially that plate discipline and getting on base. You know, we see guys from time to time come up and steal a ton of bases or hit a lot of home runs and really play with their athleticism. But when you've got that kind of control of the strike zone, there's no precedent for someone doing that and not ending up in the Hall of Fame. It's one of the strongest indicators you can have for kind of a long and and really high-end career. So I think that's where he's headed. He's already there right now. And, yeah, to me, he's the best hitter in baseball. Trout might be the best player. Betts might be the best all-around player. But just in terms of what he does in the box, I don't really think there's any question that this guy's already the best hitter in the game at 21, 22 years old. Yeah, and I don't hear any pitchers saying, yeah, let me have a crack at them. They they, mm-hmm. they they are learning how to pitch around him and let somebody else beat him. Hey, I want to ask you, with regard to games and preparing for games, what's a stat that you pay closer attention to now? I mean, we all know about batting average and runs driven in and ERA and, and the, the traditional statistics that we all assess people by. Uh, for you, what are some of the other numbers you think are becoming more important in how we watch the game and how players are valued? Yeah, I mean, there's so much out there, and that's part of what makes uh, that part of what make my job a little bit challenging. Actually, is there's just so much information. You can say that lots of things are true. There's lots of facts out there, but trying to pick and choose what actually makes sense and what the viewer is going to pick up on and what actually matters for the game is a totally different question. But that said, I will go to kind of the default answer with some of this new StatCast stuff. It's kind of hard to get your head around at first, but the more that we deal with, you know, new people coming through MLB Network, people that were just on the field, managers, you know, guys like Joe Girardi and Buck Showalter, who've been making decisions, who grew up in an old school atmosphere, but have made decisions in this more new school atmosphere. That's stuff that they're looking at, you know. If they're talking about breaking down a hitter, it's not just, you know, what does he hit off sliders or what does he do on the outside corner or whatever. They want to know how hard he hits the ball. 
does he is he hitting the ball with authority? And you know, what kind of angle is he hitting the ball on? Does he have that right mix of kind of line drives and consistent hard contact? So I think that's a good place to start with some of these new metrics. But like you said, there's so much out there. You know, there's there's really no end to it. You can go as deep as you want with all this stuff. But yeah, the Statcast stuff I think is a pretty good place to start, just because it's showing us stuff that we never had a chance to see in the past. It kind of puts numbers on those scouty terms that uh, you might have had to watch all 162 to kind of get a feel for who really hits the ball with authority. Now you can look up after 20 games and you got 60 balls in play to look at and see, you know, what did this guy average? And it's right there in front of you factually. You know, you know me well enough. I, flag day is a day I truly assess what we have as far as a team is concerned. And even for that fat matter, maybe even a player, uh, because I think by then you have a, an idea you played in good weather, bad weather. You've had an injury or two. You've had an ouchie. You had someone play better than you thought. You've had some players that didn't live up to the expectation. By then, you got a pretty good sample size of what you have. Uh, for you, what are some of the things you try and break down in the early stages of the game that you try and file away to make sure that you come back and circle back when, let's just say, flag day, for instance, and see how teams are faring and players are faring at that point? Yeah, I guess at this early point, you got to look at some more of the process type stats. You know, for pitchers, have they changed anything with their pitch mix? Did this guy scrap a pitch? Is he throwing way more, you know, is he throwing way more four seamers? Is he throwing more breaking balls? Is he attacking guys differently early in the count or behind in the count? And for me, you know, I'm lucky. I get to, I can pick a guy's brain. I can go to John Smoltz and say, you know, what are you thinking before this game that we're going into? And he might throw two or three things out there. And then I can chase down all the loose ends. I mean, He's forgotten more about baseball than I'll ever know, obviously, as the old saying goes. So, you know, I kind of like to lean on some of our analysts and just get their top of mind thoughts and then see if I can follow up on that stuff. But, yeah, the process type of stuff, you know, are guys chasing more pitches? Are they attacking certain types of pitches, you know? And then the inverse, like we talked about with the pitchers, just how they're operating with their arsenals. I think that's some of the stuff you can start to get an idea of before, you know, that sample starts, starts to play out. Because I'm with you, flag days, I've heard you say over the years, that is a pretty good target for when things start to feel a little bit more real in terms of the numbers this season. Hey, you know, what's it like when you, when you have guys that are coming out of the game and they're coming to the network and you're having a chance to get to know them, what information are they bringing to the party that maybe you didn't hear about five years ago or six years or eight years ago uh, with regard to how they value hitters or pitchers these days? Because it just seems like, these guys are better in tune analytically than maybe what they would have been 10 years ago because the analytics weren't stressed as much as they are now. But what are some of the trends that you're seeing from some of the players who had just removed from the game? I think it's for them, it's more about a way to develop as opposed to a way to quantify what's already been, been done on the field or what's taking place on the field. It's just as much about, you know, I know a lot of these teams, they've got their pitching labs now and they're mm -hmm. looking at kind of reverse engineer pitch types. You know, you hear a guy like Trevor Bauer talk about not necessarily I need to improve my curveball or I need to improve my slider. But, you know, I need a pitch that does X because I already have a pitch that does Y and I need something that works well with that and kind of work backwards on that type of stuff. So, you know, obviously Bauer is a guy who's at the forefront of that and he's still in the game. So that's not what you're going to get from a guy who, you know, might have come up in the early part of the 2000s is just coming off the field now. But I do think that's where things are headed. It's just as much about what guys do in the offseason and kind of down at the complexes in those early days of spring training in terms of the player development side and just how they can kind of be self-coached through technology or have a more collaborative type of process in terms of coaching by relying on that data that data that comes through in real time in a lot of these places, whether it be driveline or, 
you know, like we said in some of these team complexes now that are really doubling down on all the technology. So, you know, they might not have uh, coming off the field quite as good of a feel for what translates to TV in terms of that type of statistics and those type of analytics that the fans might like nowadays. But in terms of player development and improving their own performance on the field, I think that's where the players actually find the most use for these stats. They might say they're not stats people, but when some coach comes and shows them how they can add two miles an hour to their fastball, their stats people. Oh, yeah, they sign up for that quick. You know, <laughs> yeah. which which brings me to this. The, the next generation of managers and coaches, they have to learn how to break all this stuff down if they want to get anywhere in this business, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean because, you know, you get the guys who were just former players and whatever – and they kind of look at it where, like, I never really want to embrace this, so therefore I'm going to do it my way. Well, those guys end up being unemployed. So the next generation has to have a real good idea of how to, A, disseminate this information, but also be able to apply where they can teach it to other people because everybody's not going to be on the same learning plane. Yeah, and it's interesting to see some of these, not just the player development staff, but the actual in-game, on-field coaching staffs mm-hmm. at the major league level for some of these teams because they're adding positions like game planning coach, you know, communication, prevention. Yeah. communications coordinator, yeah. you know, all different kind of titles that you've never heard. And what a lot of it comes back to is being able to kind of take that information from upstairs, bring it downstairs, whether it be to the manager or the coaching staff or the players and kind of get everyone on the same page. And that can be a much harder job than it might seem. You think you've got, you know, these billion dollar organizations with all kinds of analysts and research people looking at every number, every which way. But when you've got a clubhouse with guys from 10 different countries and, you know, 26 different attitudes about what this stuff actually means, that's an important and a difficult job for someone to be able to kind of synthesize all that. So it's interesting to see how these coaching staffs are changing. You know, you see a lot of guys around the league now that might not have major league experience or even professional playing experience that are, serving key roles to kind of be that bridge from the front office to uh, to the manager's office. So, yeah, it seems like every day you look up and things are changing and moving more in that direction. I know a couple of years ago when the Dodgers first started, it was like, what is this? Who is this mm-hmm. guy coming over from some small college that's their data guy? And now you look around the league and it's not uncommon at all. You better have more than one of them, too. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, just when you thought math would suck, well, all those years you were in school and they would, if P equals Y, then what is Q equal and all those sort of things. Now, all of a sudden, somebody's actually applying it to the game we all love and appreciate. So I don't know where this is headed. I'm trying to put my arms around it. Uh, it, it, it just seems like it gets bigger every time I try and squeeze it. Hey, um, injuries. We had a couple this week, uh, one scare with Tatis. We don't know the extent. They say that it doesn't appear that he's going to need surgery. Um, But, you know, this is one of the chances you take when you sign a guy to a long-term deal. Now, obviously, they're insured, and and maybe this isn't going to be serious. But, man, you know, when you have your best players go down early in the season, it's a game-changer, isn't it? Yeah, no doubt. And they can't, you know, they're a good team, obviously. They've got a stacked roster, picked up a lot of good pitching, but they can't win without Tatis. I mean, that's a guy who is on the top five list of most indispensable, irreplaceable players in baseball. So that was certainly a scary situation the other day. Like you said, it does seem like there's some optimism that he can play through it and maybe avoid surgery. You know, Preller, their GM, has said that he's not at any further risk for injuring himself. But just watching some of our programming today, you know, Mark DeRosa, Buck Showalter were on this morning talking about that idea of kind of, you're not at risk of injury any further. And I know that might be 
what the doctors yeah, right. say, but you can't, there's gotta be at least some fear if he's going to try to play through this thing, through this thing that it could get worse. But then on the other hand, you know, the tone around it to me almost seems like how some, you know, some parents I'll say, you could say crazy parents, but I'll be polite and just call them parents. You know how they talk about this proactive Tommy John for high school kids. There's almost oh, a yeah. with Tatis that it's like, well, it's good. It happened now, you know, get it over with early. He's got 13 years left on this contract. They're a team that can win the world series this year. Who knows if this year, year one, of the contract is going to be their best chance. I think they'll be competitive throughout. They've got a good team that's set up with a roster that's going to play for the next few years, but yeah, you've got to be concerned. Who knows when the chance is going to be best for them to win a world series. If it's this year and he's trying to play through this thing, that's a scary thought for sure. You know, um, you, you make a great point. Um, teams that say, well, we're planning for the future. And I always remember when Mike Rizzo decided not to pitch Strasburg the year the Cardinals faced him in 11. And I firmly believe that if Strasburg would have been on their roster, the Cardinals would have had a real tough time advancing. Uh, so I'm not a believer that we plan for the future. You, you better be thinking about now because the future isn't guaranteed. And how many times have we seen a team with that one kick at the can or a player in that situation with one kick of the can that never finds his way back to that World Series or let alone winning one? I mean, how about the Cubs? Were the 2015 Cubs not similar to the 2020 Padres? Yeah, yeah. And then the 2016 Cubs actually broke down the door, much like the 2021 Padres have a legitimate chance to do. And now you fast forward a couple of years, what was supposed to be a dynasty is kind of in transition. So, yeah, the uh, the plane for the future and the overly cautious roster management, I don't think is something that's ever going to play with fans. I'm sure you could look at numbers and risk assessments that say that's the way to go. There's lots of smart people in Washington they were helping Mike Rizzo make that decision. And obviously he ultimately led them to a world series, albeit what, six years later, seven years later after that. But yeah, I'm not a big, big fan of the whole, you know, taking it for granted that you're going to be in contention every year, which like we talked about last week, I think that's mm -hmm. what makes the White Sox so fun with Tony. This is a win now, like right now, 2021. Yeah. It's all we're concerned mm -hmm. about. Hey, um, the flight of the ball. I know they talked about having limited flight baseballs. Have you noticed anything? Because all I'm seeing is I, I've seen some guys hit 450, 475 foot home runs in the first week. So maybe they're using last year's batch. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't know about this thing. And I asked Mike Schilt about it the other day. And he said he's seen some balls that have been hit hard that he thought would go. But he also took into the account he was a pitcher's ballpark. You know, maybe it doesn't carry as well. So where are we, or is it, or do we have a big enough sample size to actually know if there's a real effect? I, I'm I'm willing to give it more time because of the weather differences and some of the other atmospheric issues, along with the fact that you know ballparks are different, you know, and how they how they're set up as far as being home run havens compared to Grand Canyon. So I'm not sure what that cutoff line is going to be, but have you noticed anything in the early stages? I mean, I've seen a couple balls here and there just like everybody is. I'm just like every other fan. You see one that sounds good off the bat, even if you're not in the ballpark. You've only got the center field kid. Oh, I thought that ball was going to go. It yeah. dies 20 feet in front of the wall. How can you really <laughs> tell? But, I mean, you, you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about the weather and going back to your flag day thing. I think the weather is just, you know, all over the place early in the season. I mean, you saw that game up in Detroit that was basically being played in a blizzard on opening day. So who knows what where weather's playing in. You talk about the ballpark, watching the Cardinals play down in Miami these last couple of days. That is a cavernous outfield. I mean, there were some balls hit out there to center field that you think are going to push the, push the outfielder back to the track, and they don't even come close to getting there. So, yeah, I think we need a little more time to, uh, to see how that all plays out. 
it's certainly something that people have been hypothesizing on, you know, small samples, not going to stop anybody from telling you they've got the answers figured out in week one of the season. I know that, but, but I think for me personally, you got to wait a little longer before you make any judgments on the ball. What's on your plate for this week? What, what's on your mind? I know you got something that you want to roll out there. Yeah, I'm just really looking forward to this uh, this Dodgers-Nationals matchup coming up. I mean, the Dodgers are just – it's crazy how they've been able to reload. You know, last year they go out and they get Mookie Betts. I think it was the only – maybe the fifth or sixth time that a 100-win team had added a former MVP. Now fast forward to this year, what do they do? Well, they're moving Cy Young Award winners down to the bullpen to put more Cy Young Award winners into the rotation. So I'm really looking forward to kind of get my first look. I'm not going to be at the park, but my first kind of nine-inning – look from a work perspective at that team on Friday night. And then like we talked about with Soto, I think the nationals, you know, they're not what they were a couple years ago, but I don't know if people realize how good Trey Turner is, you know, yeah. they've still got a lot of pitching there that if things get Pick going, Josh, be Bell. Josh Bell, I mean, here's the thing about the nationals, you know, they had the COVID issues this week, literally every person they picked up in the off season was unavailable on opening day, Brad hand, the closer, uh, Schwarber, Josh Bell, Alex Avila, they, Everyone they picked up in the offseason was not there. So we haven't gotten a real look at this team. And I know you know, seeing Bell uh, the first half of that 2019 season in Pittsburgh, if him and Schwarber can get back to what they were in 2019, I think they had 75 homers combined between the two of them. That Expos Nationals franchise has never had a duo hit that many home runs together. You talk about adding that on top of Trey Turner and Juan Soto then all of a sudden you've really got something going and that's going to be the best division in baseball. I think so you can make an argument for just about anyone to finish in any order outside of Miami. I think any of those other four teams could go one through four. You see Philly got off to a really hot start Atlanta, the opposite. They lost their first four games. So who knows it's early in the season, but that NL East is pretty intriguing to me and Washington getting to getting to see them go up against kind of the standard bears and the Dodgers this weekend should be fun. Well, we get them before the Dodgers. They come in here for three against the Cardinals next week, so that should be a, a, a pretty good precursor to what to expect uh, when they go to L.A. But, you know, we saw them in spring training, and, you know, you look up and down that lineup, and yeah, I, I think Schwarber is perfect for that team, especially if they go to the DH next year. Uh, I mean, he, first of all, he's a better defender than what he gets credit for. He's got a really good throwing arm. He knows where to throw it. And he's a guy that will he will ambush you. You know, if you try and get cute with him or you try and throw in that get me over fastball, he's he's all over it. And I think he's a better hitter than his average would indicate. And a guy that you got to really be careful with because he has no problem going the other way. If you try and pitch him there, uh, he's become a little bit more disciplined. And, and I just think Josh Bell just needed a different environment and some protection around him. And I think uh, Washington's going to give him that and then some. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Schwarber, kind of going back to what we were talking about before with sort of that old school, new school, how player development goes these days. What happened with him in Chicago, you know, it's not dissimilar to kind of what happened with Jack Peterson in L.A. Mm -hmm. You get a guy who profiles in a way that makes sense. You look at Kyle Schwarber, he's a big guy who should be able to crush right-handed pitching, hit a lot of homers. Same thing with Jack Peterson. They never let him face lefties, but you think back to what they were when they came up. You know, Josh Pe Jack Peterson crushed lefties in the minors before he got to L.A., Kyle Schwarber, when he was coming back into that World Series off the off the knee injury in 2016, yeah, he had power, but he was a hitter too. He was going the opposite way. He was working counts. You know, he was hitting for average. So I think maybe sometimes guys come up and they fit a team a certain way and they push them into a certain place where they just become so one-dimensional. So I'm curious to see 
Peterson with the fresh start in Chicago, replacing Schwarber and Schwarber with the fresh start in DC, kind of out of that mindset that they've been in with their previous organization, see if they can't just play a more kind of free flowing game, play every day and not get shoehorned into just being a one trick pony. Cause I'm with you. I think Schwarber is a much more well-rounded and talented hitter than people give him credit for. Final question for you to stay on the same subject. Um, how much do you think players get typecast these days where they they want to find their strength and they don't want you to be exposed to anything else because they don't want you to work at it or maybe they don't feel you can mature? I think we miss on a lot of players today because of the typecasting that comes with. And granted, there are a lot of people who make these decisions that are smarter than me uh, and they get paid a lot more money to make that decision. But I, I really think that they miss on a lot of guys and all of a sudden they go to another organization. Somebody gives them another look in a different manner. And then they're the per- productive person that you'd hope they would be at the beginning. Yeah, I'm with you. And I mean, at kind of the inverse of what we were just talking about, I think sometimes guys do look at certain stats or certain parts of their game. that are almost non-negotiable in the modern game. Yeah. If you don't get on base in most people's minds, you can't play. There's no, there's no place for you in the major leagues, but what if you're, Victor Robles or Byron Buxton and you're an elite, elite, elite defensive center fielder who runs like the wind and can, you know, they can hit lasers all over the you know, all over the field, use the whole field. They might not walk a ton. They might have a low on base percentage, but when they make contact, it's going to be electric. And when they get on base, they're going to be able to score from first on a double or go first to third on a single and play great defense in the outfield. And, you know, I think sometimes I was, you know, again, back to this Nationals game that I'm getting ready for. You read about Robles coming into last year. He tried to add a bunch of weight and be a guy that could hit the ball out of the park. And what ended up happening, his defense ended up suffering. He wasn't able to do the things he was trying to do anyways. It wasn't like he turned into some big slugger, but he tried to play that way and sacrifice parts of his game that made him a special player to begin with. And now he's trying to get back to, like you said, just being that guy that he was. So, yeah, I definitely think guys get kind of typecast in those non-negotiable parts of the game, you know, on-base percentage offensively being the biggest one. It's like if you're not working counts and seeing a ton of pitches and drawing walks, it's like you can't play nowadays. And I don't think that's the case at all. And teams that have a little more open-minded uh, approach to that, I think, are better suited. I mean, you think about how that the whole thing started with Moneyball. It was the A's trying to zig when other teams were zagging. It wasn't that, you know, they saw that only one way – that you could build a good offensive lineup. It's just that on base percentage was undervalued. Well, when every single player in the league wants to hit like Juan Soto and draw a ton of walks, it's not undervalued anymore. Everyone's trying to do it. That's what everyone's doing. So you don't need to try and be that guy. And I'm, I'm with you. There's room for lots of different types of players in the game. Keith Costas is always great to visit. We'll do this again next week. He's Keith Costas. I'm Mike Claiborne. We thank you for watching on ClavesOnline.com. We'll be back with another installment next week right here on clavesonline.com.